Well, first, a new report analysing $178 million of investment into charities finds just 13% of people receive 73% of investment. Our guest is the former Prime Minister, Sir Bill English, the architect of the last national-led government's social investment approach. He's the chair of the social analytics firm Impact Lab, which has, with the wealth management firm Jardin, analysed over 100 programmes and $178 million worth of investment into charities to provide a snapshot of the charitable sector's impact. It's the first report of its kind and finds that just 13% of people receive 73% of that investment, or that giving, perhaps we could call it. Three quarters of the investment measured flows into three sectors, child, youth and family services, education, training and employment, and financial literacy. And half of programmes serve 500 people or fewer, with 35% of programmes targeting Māori and Pacifica communities. The report introduces the concept of social return on investments, a metric used to estimate a programme's impact on a person or a family's well-being over their lifetime, relative to the investment that goes into it. So what does all this tell us about the impact of charitable sector work, and can its role be measured this way? Bill English is with me now. Kia ora, Sir Bill, welcome. Kia ora. So what's the analysis attempting to achieve? It is uh, providing tools for funders uh, of charities, such as community trusts, individual donors, uh, potentially government, uh, providing them with tools to first understand just who they're helping, and then secondly, what impact they're having by measuring the longer-term effects beyond the actual spend on those people. Uh, And some of the results of that are, uh, reasonably predictable. This report's built on three or four years of work and it shows in some respects what you'd expect that is more money is spent on people with higher needs, in fact quite a lot more uh, and that there's a pretty wide range of programs out there and if funders need funders uh, need better tools to be able to be more proactively uh, investing for better social returns. There's lots of ways in which investment goes into an individual or a family's life. Taxes pay for things like health services, early education, uh, higher education, parental finances go into these things, uh, and our person-to-person giving goes into these things. Can, when, when you look at charity, can, give, can you give us an idea of the sorts of programmes that you looked at, the sorts of charities and what they were doing? Well, look, a whole range of charities, everything from um, running music uh, music programs for young people and communities that don't have access to it, uh, through to intensive support services for uh, families with really complex needs. And uh, what, what, what's, I think, very positive about the report is that when you look at the social return on investment, most charities are achieving something. Um, you know, validates what they're doing, and we've come across some brilliant, uh, brilliant work that no one really hears about. Uh, charities operating on their own that need validation, and secondly, there's in, there's hundreds of them who want to do good better. You know, they want to know how uh, they can have a higher impact, and we have been working with Jardin because Jardin uh, managed money for a lot of charities. Uh, they have they, they're applying an investment framework which measures financial returns, and so we're using some of that kind of uh, uh, framework uh, to apply to measuring the social returns 
on the money that's being going through to the charity. Are you also using the giant uh, database that has been gathered on uh, all New Zealanders? It's anonymised, it cross-references vast amounts of personal data of New Zealanders. This is the IDI, the Integrated Data Infrastructure. Is that also part of this analysis? Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, That's a very valuable tool because it helps you understand uh, things like what's the difference in Long in the long term effect on say a a sixteen year old Samoan girl who gets NCA level two, and what happens to someone who doesn't uh, the same the same sort of person who doesn't get NCA level two? Uh, that's now a well established process, uh, and so we can tap into that. But also we need to back it up with global evidence um, because that's um, that helps reinforce our understandings of why a program works or why it doesn't work. Because this is fundamentally about reaching people in, with with some precision about the, the needs they have and working out what works, and then more importantly, how to, how to improve uh, what works. Can you talk a bit more about broad, balanced and deep impact charities and how they differ? Yeah, well, this is quite, I think, uh, quite a big step forward because when you have uh, when funders are looking at their community, there isn't you know one answer to everything, uh, which is a bit of you know governments tend to see things as one answer to everything. What you have is a range of things going on in your community. So you have uh, quite intense, uh, quite intense support for uh, you know say for instance homeless women who are pregnant and about to have a baby. They need pretty intense trusted relationships to sustain them through a difficult period in their life, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have broad uh, broad programs that are light touch, such as mentoring services for hundreds of young people. Now, both of those can have a – both of those have positive social returns, uh, but in some communities there's a much – there's a greater need, for instance, for intense services, intense support for people with complex lives – and maybe less need for more uh, broad-based mentoring programs, even though they are of value. Chris will run us through the maths in a moment, but can you give us an example uh, in human terms? One given in the report is a program supporting Pacifica students in South Auckland. You may have alluded to it before. But when it came to reaching a conclusion, coming out, spitting out a number on its effectiveness, could you speak a little bit to that? Well, the the numbers the, the numbers are the result of uh, you know a fairly careful set of calculations and algorithms and so on, and but but we've got to be humble about what they tell us because the number is only it's one way of measuring the impact of, for instance, the program you refer to in South Auckland, uh, but it's not the only way. There's there's other other dimensions, of course, that matter in, in the world of caring and supporting. Okay, so let me just, uh, I'll just cut it, to it. The social value on every dollar invested came back as $2. Is that a good return? Um, again, when we park for a moment that we're talking about people's lives, it feels a little it feels a little awkward. But if we're looking at that about an effective intervention for the dollar invested, would that be seen as a good return? Yeah, that, that's well, it's a positive return. There'll be other programs where in the impact lab process uh, there's a higher return. Uh, but as I said, the, the number itself is only one dimension of it. What that number does, though, is it enables the people running the program to answer this question. What can we do to get a higher return? 
And the answers to that for a charity need to be fairly simple. That is, one answer might be, well, let's reach more kids. Uh, Another answer might be, we've got pretty high costs compared to what we thought. Uh, Another answer might be, well, we thought we were dealing with really challenging kids. It turns out the kids we're dealing with actually uh, are 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 doing pretty well and maybe they don't all need our support. Or the answer could be, the reason that it's $2 instead of 4 is half of the kids drop out halfway through the program. Uh, so the point of all this is to enable charities to make practical decisions that are within their capacity uh, to improve their programs uh, and have a higher impact in their community. You know, you can do very sophisticated econometric analysis, but charities generally just can't use that. They've, only, they've got, you know, five staff, or they might be all volunteers, or they might be teachers doing it after school. You know, they, they don't have time for corporate strategy. They need pretty straightforward uh, indication of what's going to help them do better, and we haven't come across a charity yet who doesn't want to improve their impact for, you know, students in South Auckland or, or or any other need in a community. Okay, so that's at the micro level, and I know I was reading of the Wellington City Missioner um, praising the impact of this, um, pardon the pun, on uh, on, on their modelling, on, on what they're doing with the effectiveness of their so- social supermarket scheme. But they do have to pay the charities, right? This is not charity in itself. No, that's right. And we find that um, charities are queuing up to get to get the work done uh, because even even though they do have to pay out front, because you know we run a, a sustainable business, we want to be we are uh, investing in systems that enable this to be done at scale. Uh, they they find that answering the sometimes difficult questions about how they're organised, um, what their data is, uh, sorting out exactly what their mission is, is very beneficial. And the Wellington City Mission has been one of hundreds of charities who respond very positively to the process. We should note your daughter, Maria, is the chief executive of this uh, and Impact Lab. And you mentioned that you've got or the organisation has got plans to do this at scale. What are those plans for the future? Oh, Look, it's just further deployment of the technology and data systems that are currently available. And I think there's, a, there's, there's another insight that's not referred to in the report, but I think is important. You don't have to be a big bureaucracy to know things these days. And I've often reflected to our team who are inspiring young people, I'd say their average age would be you know, under 30, that they are producing better analysis for small charities than I could get as a Minister of Finance with 400 people in the Treasury and the rest of the government agencies. And that's because it's very focused on the, 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 the ultimate customer, you know, the the, the um, someone who's just come out of prison, the children of prisoners, the, the, the pregnant homeless mother. Uh, you know, these charities are at the front line and we're working, you know, bottom up. And that's that's um, resource intensive and time intensive, but with uh, current data and analytics techniques and current technology, it's doable. You can have very well-informed people at the front line, in fact, better informed than their funders uh, or the government. Stay with us. I want to come back to that bigger picture matter in a moment, please. It's the former Prime Minister, Sibyl English. Uh, let's bring in Chris Wilson, who's Jardin's Head of Wealth Solutions. Can you explain a couple of things, the social return on investment metric, uh, which we were introduced to when the, the, the former uh, Prime Minister was was um, endeavouring to roll out social investment 
uh, more fully in government. So we're sort of familiar with that figure. The question is how you reach it. Some of the variables to be wary of, some of the intangibles you can't measure. How do you do it, Chris? Yeah, look, and, and absolutely, this is uh, the work that Maria and the Impact Lab team have pulled together. And so as Bill uh, referenced earlier, you know, there's pulling in a lot of uh, the numbers around how the, um, you know, essentially the impact of the investment and the spend is occurring and taking into account the full costs across uh, the dollar investment and then really the social impact and, you know, the change in pathway for people impacted by that dollar of spend. So, you know, I certainly reflect to, to Maria and team on the work they've done on creating a scalable measure. One of the things that we were really impressed by the Impact Lab team is, you know, they only capture the dollar um, that can be measured and that you've got a really clearly definable impact or, or outcome from. And so, as Bill said earlier, there's, there's aspects of this investment that don't always apply or, or are kind of intangible or harder to measure. Those don't get captured in that social return on investment. So it's good that um, you know when we do have that number, we've got some real solidity around the data of what occurs. You do, uh, but, but some of those intangibles are, are the worry. You know, you can think about the one person who turns a kid's life around just by connecting with them and, and, and just flicking a switch. And that's one of the issues, isn't it? The, the dollar measure is one way of measuring effect and impact, but there are things you can't know. Would you agree with that? I 100% agree, and I think um, Murray uh, from Wellington City Mission said it so well that the number doesn't define your organisation, it defines your purpose. Um, you know, there's absolutely things in, in each of the charities that uh, Impact Land team, team deal with and that we see uh, have an impact on the community and in various ways and, and in many intangible ways as well. And so having a number and having the work done with Impact Lab on a report doesn't define your purpose as an organisation. And, and we don't expect to see people um, changing the charities or, or who they support solely based on who maximises the social return on investment. But what we do see in this report and this uh, social return on investment is an excellent way for people to understand um, how they're doing things to make better allocation decisions uh, within their own charity and, and how they um, target programs and different focus areas within their own organisation. And actually the, the activity of going through the setup of the report and understanding your data needs and understanding where you are spending money or understanding the impact you're having is really powerful for organisations as they look at uh, trying to improve the outcomes for their um, community that they're involved with. There's always that other risk um, that having targets, it's the old, you know, what gets measured um you know, gets matters, gets gets acted on. Do you need to be careful of that in terms of ending up chasing uh, a figure, be it dollar or some other measure? Um, because that word value is so, <laughs> uh, it, it can be so intangible. And, and is striking that initial uh, variable or that, that value, um, social value number, pivotal. Could you explain a little bit more perhaps about your role in in applying these reports and advising people with them, Chris? Yeah, so look, with, with Jardin and so our advisors, what we're doing, we work with a number of charitable trusts and so there's two lenses that we have, both is working with individuals and um, 
you know, people who are in a fortunate circumstance where they're maybe looking at their philanthropic opportunities or giving opportunities in the future. But then we also work with a number of boards as well. And so we'll look to introduce Impact Lab to work with the boards uh, and support them um, in putting together a, a framework or having an Impact Lab report done for their organisation. Um, as Bill says, look, there is a cost associated with that, and actually that cost and the commitment to doing the work alongside the report is really powerful. I think just on the point of the you know, social value or, or any time you put a line um, in the sand or a metric down, uh, that does create a risk around the measurement and things being um, measured, being targeted. But what it does do is it starts a really good conversation. And so it actually supports that board to have a conversation around the table, around where they're focusing effort, what work they're doing, um, and making sure that that conversation is occurring. Because I think you know the challenge and, and probably the counterfactual there is, well, what if you don't measure anything you do? Um, and so actually having that measurement line, again, may not be the perfect number, but at least it's a start of a conversation, which is really powerful. And I think where we work with groups, it's the groups that have a clear um, conversation, clear focus of what they're trying to achieve that have the better outcomes. There's another analogy that someone's drawn, and it's with our never-ending battle uh, to prevent uh, extinctions um, with um, wildlife, for example. And you get the poster child, don't you? And, and you get an immense amount of investment in a handful of birds that are left. Uh, and maybe the social, uh, sorry, the, the, the impact on that would, would come out as being very efficacious and it's achieved this goal and that goal. Uh, and then there are sort of the ugly ducklings who don't ever seem to get going. What do you see the impact of this on new on investment in new charities, on investment in charities um, that... Don't have the ability or the wherewithal to come out with a report like this, Chris. Yeah, I think as Bill says, there's an opportunity for um, you know smaller charities to to get some definition, get some comparison because um, there's a number of groups that don't have that visibility or the the um, you know, above the line visibility in some of those larger charities or the uh, as you say the more attractive birds get in the um, extinction categories. But from a legislative um, look that. It, provides a framework and I think as Bill and as this framework develops out I think we'll see um, hopefully an opportunity for a greater number of people to be associated with with this type of work uh, with this understanding of measure uh, which should expand that and allow for some comparability between um, charities as well. I think one thing I would say is right across the um, charities community in New Zealand there's just a huge amount of work that gets done um, you know, at a volunteer and a, a support level um, right across and, and I think it's incredibly important that you know, we continue to support and, and people get that opportunity to continue to add value in the areas that are of um, interest and, and deep personal interest as well. Uh, one of the things that we see with um, when it comes to, to giving or people look at the philanthropic side, it tends to be to, to activities or um, charities that are close to heart through a personal impact, um, you know, some relationship or, or family connection or uh, a life experience, which tends to drive that type of investment. And so you do see um, that connection coming through where there's a personal um, relationship rather than it going into the, some of the just the larger groups solely. We are reasonably or comparatively generous givers compared to other nations undoubtedly being impacted at the moment by the cost of living crisis but I think as a percentage of GDP um, New Zealanders hold up comparatively generously compared to some. I am curious about the idea of corporate philanthropy, um, which can overlap somewhat with PR. Uh, would you see a demand for corporates 
and perhaps a breadth in what they may get involved in if they can uh, access these kinds of measures, Chris? Will it elevate interest? Oh, look, I think it does help. And I think what, um, you know, as, as similarly Bill referenced, found um, you know, funding providers needing some data and analytics before, if you're looking at then viewing um, corporate philanthropy in a way, you would want to look for um, sectors and charities that have both, you know, have a meaningful impact on social return on investment. But probably the most powerful thing from the report is it's that activity and it's the attitude of the board towards wanting to understand the impact of investment, how they can improve what they do. Uh, and it's actually really attractive from our side. So the groups that are working with an impact lab and really focused on how they uh, improve what they do are, are really um, positive groups that we look for. Chris Wilson, thank you. Bill English, if I can come back to you and just go to the macro again. You championed social investment in government for something like a decade. How far would you say did you get in building in an approach to the delivery of these and similar services. Look, you know, look at again, look at the numbers. Child, will, uh, child uh, youth and family services, education, training and employment and financial literacy take 73% of the private giving. Um, how far did you get in trying to build this approach into those services as delivered by government? I would say uh, a number of the tools were created and in some areas... Um, you know, some agencies really started, did start using them to really shine a light into the corners of our community where the big government agencies have never successfully reached. You know, wherever you've got people with complex needs, we, we think of it as the, essentially the 15% of the population for whom universal services don't work. Now, yeah, some agencies started to use it and then the previous government essentially told them to put those tools in the drawer. Uh, but hopefully they'll come out again under the current government uh, because there's a lot of people out there in our community, such as the examples we've, we've covered, uh, like the you know the pregnant homeless women uh, who get very poor service from government. And it's because the complexity of their lives is such that a, a large-scale education or corrections or welfare system just can't really deal with the individual nature of their needs and the need for longer-term trusted relationships, which are the key to changing those lives. Uh, so <clears throat> that the when, once you do the analysis, as the charities find, the hard bit then is how you change your services so that you are more clearly and effectively meeting those needs and the change process is really the the challenge but we see you know we've dealt literally with three about 300 charities all up and almost pretty much without exception when they get a bit more of an insight into how they're operating and the people they're serving uh, they almost always make some kind of change and uh, that's that's the reward in this whole process National has in its policy social investment fund. It's also finding out some realities and about to find out some more, perhaps, about some of its proposals uh, in, in government and um, is desperately looking to trim costs uh, across delivery in the public service. Do you think that fund will survive this process? And how do you envisage it being worked? Will it be used essentially to work in conjunction with the private sector? Well, look, I hope so, but you'd need, you'd need to talk to the government about that. I think the important point is that when money's tight, uh, 
performance matters um, in the long run. So if you want to speak, you know, wearing a hat as a former finance minister, if you want to control government spending, the, the first best way to do that is reduce demand for it. And I'll just give you an example that we, we came across, uh, a mental health uh, type uh, situation where someone had had a good look at a small group of uh, uh, people with mental illness and how much time they'd spent in hospital. And over two or three years, they were spending over 100 days a year, some up to 170, in either forensic unit or the ED. Now, with a sensible, intensive investment, they were able to reduce that to 10 days in a year, right? for over 100 days in hospital to 10 days in hospital. Now, that's how, in the long run, you know what works for those people with chronic mental illness also works for the government's books. And I would hope that um, the incoming government uh, will take that approach. You know, cost, you do have to save costs, but cost is only one part of it in the, in the short term. There's also the long-term payoff, uh, and that's what the social investment framework enables you to see. Tends to be short-term decision-making politics these days, doesn't it, however? Uh, just finally, do you have any observations of the process underway at the moment? I hope there's no PTSD kicking in. But it is an interesting one as we await the, the special votes, the prospect of National losing a seat or two and requiring support in some form from New Zealand First. Oh, look, no particular insight other than the, the observation that's been commonly made that uh, it is a different negotiation environment when uh, it's clear that there's a change of government. And in the case of um, both New Zealand First and ACT, they really only have one option, and that's well, they do only have one option, and that's negotiating with National. And uh, I'm sh- we've got a team there who I'm, I'm sure are going to uh, take take that process through to a stable, effective government. Bill English is the former Prime Minister. Chris Wilson is with Jardin.